Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. from the perspective of Ayn Rand's philosophy. Ayn Rand's philosophy of objectivism uniquely upholds the right to the pursuit of your own happiness. I'm your host, Amy Peikoff, and the title of today's show is Panama Papers, just another reminder that taxation is theft. Sorry, guys, I couldn't resist bringing in that little taxation is theft meme And if you go over to my blog at DontLetItGo.com, you will see among the program notes the list of all the stories and things that I plan to discuss today. The original taxation is theft meme that I saw on Facebook, a picture of a woman and man cuddling in bed, and it says, not all men only want sex. They need to learn to write, actually, by the way, that only is not placed correctly in that sentence. Uh, But anyway, it says, not all men only want sex. Some men just want to lay next to you and cuddle and hear that you love them and that taxation is theft. I think that's the one that started it all. So um, there is a whole page on Facebook just called Taxation is Theft, and they have all these different memes. And I actually shared one this morning that was pretty creative. Some of them are starting to get a little old and tired, but the one this morning, I really actually liked quite a bit. So go over to my Facebook page, Amy Peekoff, and I've got it as a public post there. You can follow me on Facebook and sometimes get little goodies like that. I won't tell you what it is. You have to go over there and see it, but it is fun. You'll notice if you do go to the program notes at DontLetItGo.com that the first link that I have is to the Jezebels. And the reason I have that is today, April 8th, is the day that the Jezebels were going to be playing in Los Angeles. And I had very much looked forward to attending that concert. Unfortunately, it had to be canceled due to the keyboardist Heather needing additional treatment for ovarian cancer, which was uh, really, really sad to hear. I'm hoping that she's doing well, wishing her the best. I heard that she and uh, one of the other 
band members were working together on a soundtrack for a movie uh, so that she is active in doing some work. But I gather that she just needs to stay in Australia in order to get ongoing treatment for the ovarian cancer. So I really hope that she beats this and that she's going to be able to come back out on tour with the band. Uh, I've actually been in communication with them. I'm trying to get Haley Mary back for an interview because I did an interview with Haley Mary when they were on tour a couple years ago. And I understand, I just missed her, that Haley Mary was going around by herself to different places around the United States and doing some promo for the new album, Cynthia. And she's not any longer in the States, but I'm going to be contacting the manager and see if I can arrange a phone interview, either live or pre-recorded or something because they have all that crazy time in Australia that might not coincide with uh, you know our time zone here. I don't want to make her wake up too early in the morning just to talk to us. So I do hope to get her for an interview as well. Do check out the new album, Cynthia. There's some really nice tracks on that. Uh, at the end of the show, I'm probably going to lead out with another Jezebel's track, uh, one, of, one of my favorites, just to commemorate. But yeah, I really wish I was going to that concert tonight and I do hope that they're going to be able to reschedule it pretty soon it would be nice to see them so uh, go over yeah I said don't get don't let it go.com giving you plenty of time to get over there I've got a few election related articles to start with as you know Ted Cruz won in Wisconsin over Donald Trump by a large margin this week and I'm assuming that if you're listening to this show you're probably on board with me and you think that that is good news. There may still be some Trump supporters out there who are listening, but I think that Trump's, the mystique of Trump, the appeal of Trump is is starting to fade. And the chances of Trump winning the nomination are slipping. In fact, if you go to Nate Silver's 538 blog, 538.com, the headline is Trump's new magic number is 40% of the vote. He has, they're saying uh, 39% in the Pennsylvania polling, 37% in California, and 39% in Maryland. And Nate says that if this were February or early March, that would leave him without much to worry about. Even if Trump picked up zero undecided voters, he'd be pretty much guaranteed a win with the rest of the vote divided between a half dozen opponents. But now, right, there's Cruz, and then, of course, the hanger-on, the most annoying hanger-on is Kasich is still there. But now, uh, what do you have? In Wisconsin on Tuesday, Trump had 35% of the vote. That's the same share that allowed him to win New Hampshire easily in February. And it was also a larger percentage than he got when he won South Carolina, but not only did Trump fail to win Wisconsin, he got crushed by Ted Cruz. So Silver says that in many respects, this is an old story. One of the main reasons for the initial skepticism he had, he said about Trump's candidacy, was he has high unfavorability ratings. And I saw a recent poll, his unfavorability rating is 70%. And this means that he cannot pick up additional votes as the field narrows and the the votes that you know from the people who have abandoned their campaigns those votes are going over to either Kasich or you know the the bulk of them are going over to Cruz if we want to see Cruz as the nominee this is very very good news and i would like to see that out of the current field i would very much love to see Cruz as the nominee so silver writes and continuing at the article he says 
I think people may underappreciate the degree to which this is no longer just a theoretical problem for Trump. It's become an actual problem. And he says this is as readily apparent from the data from the states that have voted so far. The threshold Trump needs to win states is increasing considerably faster than the share of the vote he's getting, which isn't increasing much at all. Technically, Trump is chasing delegates, not wins, but most of the remaining states award at least some delegates to the statewide winner, and there are still five winner-take-all contests left on the GOP calendar. He says, so we can be more precise about this, Um, he says he's going to state something called the minimum winning vote share. It shows the smallest percentage of the vote a candidate could receive and still win a state. So he calculated it you know, for Trump in South Carolina, for example, um, et cetera. But now his minimum voting share is up to 40% for the states that come on and maybe even more. Um, he says the lowest was in New Hampshire. He could have gotten away with just 19.5% of the vote, but now it's steadily increasing. It's averaged 40.3% in the three states that voted since then. And... Now he's saying that that's going to be the cutoff. It's got to be in the 40s for him to win. Why? Because, and, and, you know, how, why is this a problem for him? Because he's got such a high unfavorability rating. So the guy is just not doing that well. Um, Cruz has been pe- beating his polling average by about 10 percentage points as well. Uh, Kasich is underperforming his polls, and it looks like Trump is underperforming his polls as well. So a little bit of trivia what i don't know and if anybody in the chat room over here at blog talk radio knows i would like to know if new york is a winner take all state i think there's 99 delegates that are at issue there and i don't know if it's winner take all i assume that it's not and that when cruz is out there campaigning he's going to get a chunk of the delegates i would love to hear about that um, I see a number of people join us here in the chat room. Welcome, everyone. I got John, Waldo, um, Corey, Ed Powell. Welcome. And thanks on the Tim Sandifer interview. I love that Tim Sandifer interview. For some people, you may think it's just too much law, but I think that Tim Sandifer has three awesome qualities. This was the interview that I did last week. If you missed the April 1st show, listen to it. Staying here now because we have a good show here. But um, after you're done, go check that out. Why? Uh, Sandifer is encyclopedic. He just has so much knowledge and interesting knowledge, too. So encyclopedic. Second thing is that he's very down to earth. He's got everyday examples from the culture, all kinds of fun and a little bit obscure cultural references to bring in as analogies to explain a concept. Love it, love it, love it. And then finally, he's just so benevolent. Just awesome. So I do hope to have him as a guest again. And I think if you are interested in property rights and how they're being abused by our government, as well as the Lexi Page case, both of those topics were covered really nicely in last week's show. Um, Ed Powell says that New York is winner-take-all by congressional district plus 11 statewide. Okay, so maybe there are some districts that Cruz is going to be able to dominate in. I'm hoping that that is the case. When does New York happen? It happens soon. 
Um, that's that's what I'd like to know. Uh, you know, how long does Cruz have to go out there and educate people about how wonderful he is versus the Donald, so to speak? Ninety-five delegates awarded proportionally by district, says somebody. Okay, now I'm getting confused. He can gain 14 delegates if he wins more than 50% of the statewide vote. The, all these rules sound super complex, so maybe I'm just going to have to wait and see how it comes out. And I'm just going to have to you know, be hopeful that as Cruz goes around there and starts to educate people, that more people are going to come over and vote for him and that he's going to be able to turn that into some delegates, even if not all, because the Donald supposedly has... New York wrapped up. California is what I'm really looking forward to. I understand there's 170 some odd delegates at stake in California and that if I go to the polls, I can actually make a difference in awarding some of those delegates to Cruz. So I'm pretty excited about that. Um, I may even know who my delegate is, the one that would be going if the vote goes the way it should, uh, where I'm going to be voting. So that's kind of just kind of fun. I've never gotten this involved in an election before, and why is it? Because we have a candidate who, faults and all, is so much better than anybody you might expect to have gone this far in the process. One of the things that people have been afraid about is, you know, Trump and Cruz get to the um, convention. I guess Kasich is going to try to keep tagging along. Some people have been worried that at the convention when you know, not either Trump or Cruz clearly have the 1237 that are needed, et cetera, et cetera, that the GOP is going to try some maneuvers to give it to Kasich. Another person they're concerned about is that they're going to try to give it to Paul Ryan. And Drudge had on his website, which I try to avoid going to because it's too much of a Trump uh, outlet, uh, Ryan put a video, a 43-second video, I guess, on his website, the speaker website, where he's talking about the current political climate or whatever and trying to, I guess, seem like the elder statesman mentality. I didn't even watch it. I don't want to watch it. The whole idea is that he's trying to weigh in on the current tone and tenor of the political discussion and you know show you how great he is. And some people say, well, he's campaigning. He wants to enter into the race for president. Can you imagine this guy not even going out there and campaigning and doing all the work, and they're going to try to come in and give him the nomination at a convention where he's done no campaigning at all. He put some 43-second video out there. I could put a 43-second video on the web that would be really impressive, and you're not going to give me that. Yeah, okay, you say he's speaker. Fine, okay, he's speaker. But I would be so much better than Paul Ryan because I could get people who are educated like Paul Ryan, and I have better principles than Paul Ryan. So um, forget this. Why is he going to get to do this? Anyway, supposedly he's saying, no, 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 I'm not running. You know, the aides are responding, saying, no, 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 you know, thanks for the click stretch, but no, he's not running. He's just, I guess, campaigning for himself as a speaker, trying to make himself look good. I hope that's the case. I hope the GOP is not going to try to pull some fast maneuver to either insert Kasich or Ryan. Um, you know, again, I think Ted Cruz is going to have the best ground game at the convention. He's the one who seems to be the most on the ball about the process of, um, you know, wooing the uncommitted delegates. A lot of delegates are bound only for the first ballot. 
And so on the second ballot, they are free, for example, if they were initially pledged to vote either Rubio or Trump or whoever, that they could then go over to Cruz. And, you know, all the rules on this vary state by state, and it's very complex. But there are a number of these unbound delegates that Cruz has brought over to his side, promising to vote for him on a second or third ballot. Trump tries to say that these people are stolen, and that myth has been debunked you know, thoroughly through this week. I didn't even put a link to that one. Uh, Nate Silver, again, over at 538, has another article. I've got two links to him this week. And it says that Ted Cruz, not Paul Ryan, would probably win a contested convention. And Silver's got no skin in this game. He's a liberal as far as I'm concerned. So what he wants to do is he wants to give you accurate predictions so that you keep coming back to his blog because right now I'm looking at an ad on his blog. Thank you, Nate Silver, by the way, for not having annoying pop-up ads that prevent me from reading your articles. But I will continue to send people to this blog as long as it's got good objective reporting on the actual statistics and the chances of people winning. And so far, he's got a really good track record. So that's where he's going to get his bread and butter, or his bread buttered might be the expression. So um, go check that out. By the way, I should tell you guys, I am tired. I don't know if you can tell. I'm a little fried. I was up most of the night. I was only sleeping about four hours. I'm working on a... Uh, one of my two editing projects that are coming up due soon. And so if you hear me being a little bit fried, not being able to find the right word, that is my big excuse. But that is my little overview of election news. We're waiting to see what happens in New York. I hope it's better for Cruz than Trump thinks it's going to be. Uh, Kasich, I think, is thinking he's going to get a whole lot of the votes there, too. Cross fingers, it doesn't happen. I've got a phone call. I'm going to go ahead and grab it, see who this is. Hi, who's here? Hello. It's Harold. Harold. How are you doing? Harold, so in addition to the little things that I was sharing there, what do you know about where Cruz stands? All right. Actually, I actually jumped in and got a little bit involved this week. I was actually making some calls for the Cruz campaign. They have their, you don't even have to register anymore. They have the public credentials up on the site, the username and password. So you can just jump in and start making calls and talking to people. I did, I did a few just to see what it was like. It looks like you don't really have to convince the people. It looks like they, their targeting is so good that when you get someone on the phone, they're already a Cruz supporter. So they've, they've done a good job with that. Um, New York. Yeah, I saw Cruz was downtown New York. He was Brooklyn and Bronx, where only 6% are registered Republicans, even though it's an entire congressional district with three delegates. Winner gets gets two, and the, the runner-up gets one. But I guess if you're above the threshold, you get all three. So Cruz is down there, and he's been working those people for years. I mean, he was at like a, a matzah bakery or something today, and the people <laughs> all know him. And the the people know him and respect him because apparently he was late was on Politico. He was late for some meeting with some rabbi down there because he didn't want to eat his cheese and bacon burger in the guy's car, and, 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 the, and the person remembered that. And so wow. they, that's to his credit from their point of view. Um, right. New, New York, it's very important for Cruz to limit the number of delegates that Trump gets to less than 95 because there's also Pennsylvania, all unbound, 100% unbound, no matter what happens. So that's mm. good. Trump doesn't automatically get them. Okay. And so Cruz, this is what he's going to pick up. On the East Coast, the only thing Cruz can really pick up is Indiana. That Cruz is probably going to 
totally stampede Indiana and get the whole thing. But once you're on the East Coast, if you can pick off some delegates in New York and Pennsylvania, I think that's the best Cruz can do. New Jersey, you know, is going to be like totally Trump. And all the rest on the East Coast, of maybe Connecticut is not so bad. And then once you get west of the Mississippi, this weekend, I believe there's a, a state convention or some final numbers are done. A whole bunch of delegates will get released for cruise, probably another 20. And then you've got the Colorado State Convention next week, and that cruise has already won. The delegates just have not been assigned yet. That's going to happen. Okay. And once you get west of the Mississippi, I expect Cruz to pretty much take just about everything west of the Mississippi. And California, Cruz is already... Now, that, w- that wasn't true in Arizona, though, right? Arizona is a special case. Or Nevada. Arizona and Nevada are retirees. They are older, poorer people like Florida, ex, ex-New Yorkers and ex-New Jerseyites, you know, so that's what you got there. Okay. So I expect I expected Trump to pick those up, but it's, it's his constituency. It's the older, you know, angry white people. That's Trump's. Those are his okay. people. So, but California is a whole different story. And and making calls in California, jumping on the cruise side, anybody can do that. In fact, right now the only option you're given which button to click, the only one on the list is New York. They, hmm. in other words, they're redirecting the resources towards New York. Once right. that's over, I expect they'll they'll give you a choice of four or five states in the Northeast. You can click on which one you want to work on. Right. And then they redirect in a timely fashion. They redirect the resources. So once the, you can't even work on the California one now because the the system won't let you. They they're selected now. Here's, now here's the thing, Harold. Could you go to my blog at don'tletitgo.com and put a link to the place that you're describing that people can go to if they want to, you know, they have several minutes and they want to do some phone calls for cruise. Yeah. Um, that would be, that would be cool. I might even check it out. Who knows if you're listening, I might call you. It's, it's very, it's very easy because it's not like, it's not like um, when I was working for Schiff there, I had a whole one minute script, which I wrote myself and I'd actually bounce it off. Other people working would polish up our scripts and make them better. And you had to mm-hmm. explain who the person was and why the person was better than Linda McMahon and, you know, WWW Wrestling and why she's a loser and supported Democrats in the past. With Cruz, it's easy because everyone knows who he is. So the only thing it's really a survey is like, are you going to show up? Do you still support him? And can we count on your support? And would you like to volunteer to make calls like I'm doing right now? So you multiply the effect of your calling by trying to recruit other callers. So nice. it's kind of clever. Nice. So it's like a multiplying okay. factor in there. I, I thought of that. Now, what they don't have is they don't have a free field. Now, California, put, California is not until June. So. I know, but it takes, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of resources to get to everyone. Oh, There's no, five I know. Million. But I'm just, I'm just saying I've got, I've got crazy next several weeks. I've got some major projects I'm trying to finish it, up. And so I probably won't be doing this for a few weeks, but then I can have some time and help you guys. It, it doesn't need one person. I think it's going to need over a thousand people to work California. So your one calling thing is, is really not going to make a whole lot of difference. What we have to do is find some multiplying factor, like a force multiplier, where we can get a whole group going in California. This is what I wanted to speak to you about, but I figured I'll just, just do this out in public anyway. I want to organize a secular group that can start calling California as soon as as soon as that link is available and we can jump in there. Sure. And just throw everything into the, just open up with all the cannons at once 
on California on the, and and this the system will direct you you see the you see the caller's name and phone number and address on the screen of the of the registered um republican right. so you can tell what town you're in so you can kind of direct your conversation towards um and if you think you're hitting an Ayn Rand supporter you can have recorded that little clip of Cruz you know doing the uh, Atlas Road, you know, the, the Medicare on the floor, thing yeah. on the house of the floor, so you can play clips if you wanted to do that. The only thing you need, um, you don't have to have a phone. You can do it directly from your computer. You just plug in your, your headset, and you can go through the system like that, or you can use your phone. And okay. so there's various options on the system. But I think Cruz has reached the point where he's now over the top of the hill. He's sort of on the flat plateau at the top, ready for the easy downhill part you know, to get to the convention. Right. And I think Trump is going ballistic because he kind of feels it's slipping away from him. And psychologically, he's losing it. Yeah, and if, if Nate Silver is right, he needs to get 40% from here on. And if his polls regarding the unfavorability ratings are accurate, getting 40% is going to be very difficult for him and, in any states coming up. And with Cruz overperforming 10% everywhere because of his massive data operation, he knows how to squeeze all the toothpaste, and he's literally finding every last drop of toothpaste there is in the tube. Right. And But California is so important. I expect Cruz is going to pick up Oregon and Washington, and, of course, all the flyover country, that's going to be Cruz. I, I, right. I don't have any doubts about that. But I think we need to work California and, and organize something just me Excellent. by myself or a few other people. We need to have an organized group. Maybe Sunny, maybe we can get some information to Sunny and she has her group of people. Sure. And just yeah. get organized. Yeah, as, uh, soon, as soon as that link becomes available, I will blast and blast and blast it. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to helping I'll with that I'll put the link effort. up right, right now. Like I say, all the effort is in New York, and New York is also important. That's 95 yes. delegates now. Obviously, Trump has an advantage. The more we can weaken Trump in New York, the more that will help in the next contest, especially Pennsylvania. So Trump has to look like a – not a winner. He's a whiner. And you know, the more we can make him whine, you know, he whines right. and whines and whines until you get tired of it. I love how after Wisconsin, he didn't even have any sort of speech or anything. He just had that horrible statement that they released, right? It was he, so he lame. Did what, he did what he accused Romney of doing, hiding. Mm -hmm. he, he hid away, and Hillary hid away as well. Excellent. Yeah, we'll definitely uh, my, post that over there. And um, pretty quick, i got to get on to the actual main topic of the show. Okay, I didn't one, want to spend too much time on elections today. You've got another point? One more? Yeah, just very quickly. My, the, as I'm feeling, there's a, as I'm feeling that, that Cruz is going to win, I'm pretty much, in my mind, I see him in the presidency. I can see that in my mind now. It's the first time ever I've, I've reached that point. And now I'm starting to look for negatives. You know, what, what don't I like about him? Mm -hmm. Because there are some things, especially the he's not pushing the religion as hard, but he's still pushing it. Yes. And so I'm getting this, this sort of negative feeling. But when I look at the big picture, I, I say to myself, this is the best we got, and I just have to go with it. By the way, Harold, and anyone who's listening, the objective standard put out an exhaustive description of why Cruz really is the best candidate in the current context to support not just the lesser of evils, but actually a good choice for us at this time. And um, I don't know if you've seen it, but I highly recommend checking that out. A lot of the points are 
points that I've made, not as precisely, you know, in live radio mm-hmm. over the years since I've been following and uh, yeah. excited about Cruise. But the couple things for sure, I, I love that Craig Biddle, who wrote this, you know, statement supporting Cruise, that he started with free speech and foreign policy. These are two areas in which Cruise really shines. Cruise, Cruise, Cruise did. Cruz did the First Amendment, Second Amendment, Fourth Amendment, and Fifth Amendment. That's a pretty good start. Yes, yes. We'll, we'll, we'll take it as a start, and particularly First Amendment, because if you disagree with your leaders, you want to at least be able to persuade and get somebody better the next time. So he would be a great start uh, to try to save this country, I think. So thank you very much, Harold. And, yeah, I'm going to have um, one more story here on Cruz. I couldn't resist doing this because, uh, you know, I'm talking about taxation is theft, and everybody knows that Cruz is the only candidate out there who has promised to abolish the IRS. And there's this opinion piece over at the Washington Post. I'm sorry, I'm laughing, but I just, I laughed at this thing. The headline is, Cruz's plan to abolish the IRS would reward cheaters and hurt honest taxpayers, okay? And... I read through this piece, and I read through it pretty quickly. You guys can tell me. Am I just tired or something? But the woman who wrote this, um, let me put her name out there, Catherine Rampel. So she says, well, you know, what would the country look like without its main revenue collecting agency? And she says, fortunately or un, we're already more than a sixth of the way to finding out. And she talks about the fact that, um, the IRS's budget has been cut. And so now if you think, okay, well, the IRS's budget has been cut by one-sixth, 17% in inflation-adjusted terms, she writes. Um, so you're seeing, you know, one-sixth of the way towards what it would be like to abolish the IRS. And she goes through all these statistics about how um, – you know, that basically people are not getting the customer service. And you you might think that it's great that the audit rate has gone down, but really that's favoring the cheaters. And so the cheaters now, because they cheat, you know, so much, then everybody else's taxes are going to have to be raised to make up for the shortfall for the cheaters. And she goes on and on and on. And I'm thinking, she is missing something huge, which is that when Cruz abolishes the IRS, He's going to abolish all of these, you know, myriad regulations that, you know, and she talks about here, our Byzantine tax code. That Byzantine tax code is gone with the IRS, right? Our tax returns, he has told us, are going to be back to the old style that I have seen. I've actually held one of these in my hands before, a postcard tax return. They used to have this in the 60s. It was so much easier, less stressful. Uh, you know, who hasn't yet filed their, you know, their taxes for this year? Why? Because, you know, you have to fill out all of the insane forms and try to figure out your deductions and everything else. All of that invites cheating. So, yeah, he's going to get rid of the IRS. And But you can't just multiply the current effect of cutting the IRS's budget by one-sixth and then see what the effect is going to be like. Why? Because you're getting rid of the code that the IRS was in charge of administrating. I I don't know. Did I miss something? You guys, look at this article. You tell me if I missed something, but I think this woman is nuts. Um, It is going to be a huge boon. Uh, It's not going to benefit, quote-unquote, cheaters. And again, cheating cheating on your taxes, you're 
defending yourself against theft from the government. The government is taking money that you have earned from you against your will. And when you're considered to be a cheater, that means what? You're not having as much of your money stolen. It's more fair if your you know, legally mandated share is actually stolen from you that you're not able to evade that. Okay, in some bizarre logic, I guess we could say that. But there is no logic by which you can say abolishing the IRS that the effect of that is going to be six times the effect of cutting one-sixth of the IRS's budget. That is bizarre. So enjoy that. Um, and now for the, the main event for this, <sighs> Panama Papers. This Panama Papers scandal that has come out this week. I actually had to learn about this from one of my students because a lot of the mainstream media weren't even touching this. I guess they didn't even know how to spin it. But there's this thing called the Panama Papers, and I've got an article from Reason.com that explains what it is and you know what they really think it's about. They think it's about government corruption, not necessarily tax evasion. A lot of people are spinning it as tax evaders. So what is the Panama Papers? They say it's the largest leak in world history revealing millions of documents related to the offshore accounts of politicians, former politicians, and billionaires around the world. And Reason's point is despite the fact that the media is focusing on tax evasion, oh, how bad it is that people are trying to evade taxes, in fact, the primary thing that this story is about is official corruption. And my spin on this whole thing is that all of this whole Panama Papers, whether you look at it from the tax evasion standpoint or the official corruption standpoint, it is all just one giant reminder that taxation is theft. So here's why. Now, first of all, the taxation, you know, excuse me, the tax evasion prong of this, of course, is just a reminder that taxation is theft, right? Why are people doing cartwheels all around the world in order to evade taxes. Why? Because taxation is theft. They have this strong sense that they're entitled to keep more of what they earn. And in fact, morally speaking, they're entitled to keep everything that they earn if they so choose. If they want to go ahead and engage in acts of private charity and they can afford to do so without any self-sacrifice, they can give to causes that they value, they can help people who are in bad situations through no fault of their own. This is awesome. But um, otherwise, they need to be able to hang on to their money. They certainly don't need government pointing a gun at them and saying, give us your money or you go to jail. So the whole reason that people have all of these shell corporations and offshore accounts and all the stuff that's revealed in these Panama Papers is because they are escaping this moral, excuse me, immoral, this immoral institution of the involuntary income tax. So that's, you know, that prong of it. But let's look at the official corruption prong of it. Ed in the chat room says, how can King Solomon of Saudi Arabia, I guess he's one of the people revealed in the papers, how can he be called corrupt? He's a king. That's what kings do. Yeah, kings just take what they want and, and never pay for it, basically. Um, so that's true. But one of the politicians that they talk about in terms of an example, and of course I'm beachballing here over at the Reason blog, it was the prime minister of Iceland, 
who was one of the people affected by this. And let me see if I can actually scroll down now. Why is it during the show that I'm getting these beach balls too? It's it's very evil that my computer is doing this to me. In any event, I read it earlier. So the Prime Minister of Iceland is, you know, he's paid all his taxes, so it's not about tax evasion even for him, but it was that he had some holdings in some banks, I guess some failing banks in Iceland that were subject to government regulation, and that would be a huge conflict of interest for the Prime Minister of Iceland, so he resigned. That happened earlier this week. So that's just one example of the type of corruption that we're talking about. Now, that government corruption, the reason that it is even an issue is because our governments today have way too much power, including the power to tax. And you could talk about, you know, the power to regulate and determine what happened to financial institutions like banks as an indirect form of taxation. The income taxes that we all have due on the 18th of April here in the United States those are, of course, a direct form, but there's a lot of indirect forms through government regulation of these financial institutions. Governments should not have the power that they do over these financial institutions. And if governments didn't have the power that they do over these institutions, then there wouldn't be a conflict of interest for, for example, a prime minister to have some holdings in some banks, right? But as it stands right now, the government has so much power, it's reaching into so many areas of our lives, then there is this conflict of interest. So, um, uh, Ed Powell in the chat room is telling me about my my um, my beach ball, or as I like to call it, the spinning rainbow of death and, and the origin of it. He says, El Capitan does not play well on older hardware. El Capitan is the the new operating system. You know, it it has been performing well for me all morning. I did my program notes. I was shifting. I had all these tabs open. It was beautiful. And then here I am at the at the show. So, for example, now I've got the paragraph that I wanted. Uh, Prime Minister of Iceland resigned earlier today. This is on the fifth over revelations that he owned a shell company in the British Virgin Islands. Prime Minister Sigmundur David. Gunnelixson, I can't pronounce it. I'm sorry if I botched it. Uh, he insists that he's paid his taxes. He's done nothing wrong. Yet his shell company, according to CBS News, quote, held interests in failed Icelandic banks that his government was responsible for overseeing, end quote. So I say don't have government responsible for overseeing banks. That is just another indirect form of taxation. Taxation is theft. And then we wouldn't have this problem. It wouldn't be such a big deal. There'd be nothing to reveal because people wouldn't be, you know, putting their interests overseas in order to hide all this stuff. So um, we're, we're getting more comments in the chat room speculating as to where my spinning rainbow of death problem comes from. He says, I think Blog Talk Radio doesn't play well with browsers. Well, I actually have Blog Talk running on one computer, and then I have the, um, you know, Safari with all my news and stuff on a laptop. It's so fancy. Um, no, it's not that fancy, actually. But my laptop is, I think, a late 2012. So it's not super old, but maybe it's dated. Maybe Ed's going to tell me it's too old. It's ancient. Oh, well, I'll have to see. 
Um, but at least at least I'm here with with my stories. But yeah, so this is why I think that the you know the second prong, the government corruption prong of the Panama Papers scandal, also just reveals that taxation is theft. And if you want to talk about the consequences of this whole system of taxation and all of the hoops that people jump through, the cartwheels that they do in order to evade taxation. Uh, what's the cost of that? The cost of that is a huge leak like this in which the private information of these individuals is at risk. I don't know for sure whether identity theft can be uh, committed on the, you know, the people whose documents were dumped. I understand that well over a terabyte of data on all these people has been dumped. So, you know, imagine that that is another risk whenever you're out there trying to escape this immoral taxation scheme. You, you know, uh, put your documents at risk. It becomes some sort of, uh, you know, coup to be able to release all this data on the rich people, the fat cats, so to speak, people who are actually trying to evade their taxes. You know, it's so horrible. Uh, State Defiance is saying, still using the Commodore computer. Oh, my God. Wouldn't that be horrible? I do feel like that someday, though, and you, and you shouldn't feel like that if you have a Mac, right? You should feel like, you know, everything is, is going well and peachy all of the time. I'm actually restarting my browser here, and we'll see if that's going to help me at all. I don't know. I don't know if it will. We'll find out. Um, as I said, go to don'tletitgo.com. That is where I have all of the program notes. I could, uh, if worse comes to worse, I could have people call in and read the article from their computers, which are working wonderfully for me, but I think mine's mine's doing okay right now. So about government corruption, not tax evasion, but yes, I think even with respect to government corruption, this is just yet another reminder that taxation is theft. There's another kind of spin on the Panama Papers scandal and it's the subject of a Washington Post article. Headline, Panama Financial Scandal Blows Up Into Democratic Skirmishing Over Trade. And the upshot of this is that when there was some sort of a free trade agreement with Panama, what we should have gotten, according to the Democratic lawmakers, is, quote, more transparency about Panama's financial institutions. And when they mean transparency, they mean transparency about all of the taxpayers because, of course, Democrats' concern is that there is no person anywhere who actually is able to evade the long reach of the arm of government into your pocket, right? That would just be horrible. If you remember, I talked about several weeks ago, I think it was in the the Billy Bud themed show where I spoke about Obama being at South by Southwest and talking to all those techies about how horrible it is that people might be walking around with an encrypted device in their pocket. And on that encrypted device, they would have the equivalent of a Swiss bank account that they could use to evade taxes. How terrible this is. Now, I think what he was talking about is Bitcoin. Why? Because Bitcoin can live entirely in your handheld device. And so then if your handheld device is encrypted, it's totally secure. But other bank data, right, you can do bank by phone with all kinds of banks, but the data also exists in the bank's 
you know, databases and servers and stuff. And the bank routinely turns over a ton of your financial data to the government. So that's not the concern. The concern is that you might actually be holding some Bitcoin or maybe you could be holding some, you know, bank by phone data about an account that for whatever reason the government doesn't have their claws into, some account overseas or something. So, you know, how horrible, right? So what do they mean with transparency? Transparency should mean, it should mean transparency about what the government is doing, but instead transparency in this case, according to the Democratic lawmakers, is transparency about financial institutions that are trying to save us from theft, namely taxation. So, um, you know, it's interesting to kind of look at the, the lingo that they're using. The article says, although trade deals do not typically address tax issues, U.S. officials said, the Obama administration won a separate agreement that gave financial regulators greater access to information on Panamanian bank accounts. But I guess apparently it wasn't enough to, you know, not make the Panama Papers such a revelation. So now what they're talking about is they want additional transparency rules as part of the trade policy. So unless you know, we're doing this this bargaining. And again, what's, you know, what's a trade deal? The trade deal says we're not going to charge a bunch of tariffs when your goods come into our country. And in exchange, you're not going to charge a bunch of tariffs or higher tariffs when our goods go to your country and maybe some other stuff that we're going to put on as a writer. But they're putting all sorts of things on as writers. And now they want to have as a writer the ability to get this information about people who don't want to pay as much in taxes as the government might think that they should. They're going to hold up a free trade agreement, which means they're going to make goods that would come in from Panama more expensive unless we get, quote, concessions about transparency from the Panamanian government, which is revulsifying. And what is that? That's just really more taxation. It is another indirect form of the way in which government is reaching into your pocket through force, just taking money right out of it. Why? In this case, making you pay more goods, uh, pay more for goods from Panama until they get their transparency. Um, Tim in the chat room says, do we need to talk about FBI cracking the iPhone? Yeah, I mean, what's one of the motives for cracking the iPhone? One of the motives for cracking the iPhone is to make sure that people aren't evading their taxes. This is something that Obama said explicitly at South by Southwest, that that was a a main cause. It's something that all of those tech people who tend to go liberal, they should be, you know, militant about it. And if you go to Drudge, right, Drudge Report, he's very populist on this issue. He, in his headlines, you know, always throws out these negative implications about tax evaders, Anybody who is not paying potentially what the government ideally would want to collect from them in taxes that is using the law, even if they're doing it completely legally, uh, dredge will, I was going to say Trump, but Trump dredge, you know, interchangeable, populist garbage, right? Um, That these guys think that you should catch them, how evil it is that you would use your sophisticated legal knowledge in order to hold your interest in such a way that you would reduce your tax burden. That's just horrible. Um, David Fisco here in the chat room. Welcome, by the way. I don't know if I've seen you in the chat room before. He says, Rand left a framework 
and she stressed it was only a framework for funding government with only voluntary payments. And I've always wondered why objectivists don't discuss that framework more. Um, we can definitely discuss that framework more, you know, how it is that you could fund a government, all of its proper functions of police, course, uh, police courts and military, right? You have to have the police to protect you against criminals. Criminals are always a, you know, present but small minority in any, you know, particular society. There's always going to be some there, and you do need police to deal with that. You need the courts in order to have an impartial arbiter of honest disputes, not just, you know, to prosecute criminals and everything else, but there are honest disputes among productive individuals, and those need to be subjected to an objective arbiter uh, in order to have those uh, disputes fairly decided. So we need the courts, and we need the military to protect us from the foreign invaders. How could you pay for this? Uh, her rough framework, as I understand it, is to charge a so-called stamp tax, is maybe what you might call it, but it would be a flat percentage on the value of any contract that you would want to have in force in, enforced in courts of law. So say 3%. And I think the hypothetical is that if it was 3% of all contracts that you wanted to have legally enforced in the country's courts and the courts of the nation, that that would pay for all of the proper functions of government. Of course, there are people who also voluntarily donate to their local police departments and things like that, too. So that can pick up some of the, the gap. But that is her idea. Now, what do we need to do? Before we can even start talking about that, we actually have to address the moral issue that taxation is theft. People need to understand that taxation is actually theft. And um, there's a lot of people who think, no, you know, that there's government infrastructure and you must pay your fair share and you didn't build that. And so you have to owe and pay back and all, all of these arguments have to be addressed. Now, one of the things that has to be addressed also is the income inequality debate. And conveniently, I have a link to Yaron Brook and Don Watkins' book, Equal is Unfair, America's Misguided Fight Against Income Inequality. And that is in the program notes for today's show. So again, go to don'tletitgo.com. I've got all these articles I've been talking about, plus a link to that book. And that's part of the argument that needs to be made out there, the moral argument Taxation is theft, um, that you, you know, all, all of these, you know, so-called problems the, that people think require, you know, government taxation in order to pay for the roads and infrastructure and all these different things, you know, yeah, we need to debunk all of those myths, but primarily we need to make the moral argument that there is no duty to sacrifice yourself for other people. That if you have earned money, more money than somebody else, you should not feel guilty for it. You don't have a moral obligation. You can donate through voluntary charity if you want, but it is not a proper function of government. In fact, it's immoral for government to take money from you against your will and redistribute it to other people. Once that argument is made and accepted, then we can start talking about how can we fund the proper functions of government through voluntary taxation? Corey in the chat room says, it's a great read. I'm not finished yet, so I can't give my review, but I will as, as soon as I possibly can. As I said, I'm kind of buried over here at the, mo at the moment. Sally in the chat room says that Don Watkins 
is talking in a San Antonio uh, appearance Saturday morning from 9 to 11 in the morning. I highly recommend going to see Don. He is an excellent speaker. I know that your own Brooke has also been going around and promoting the book. Uh, Corey said that he's going to review it. Yeah, if you do get the book and read it, the best place to post a review is at Amazon. And that's what I'm going to be doing too, because you want to have as many substantive reviews explaining what is uh, excellent about this book out there as, as you possibly can. I understand the book is doing exceedingly well, and that's part of the good news for the week that we can have. Um, I have a couple articles, and they are on the theme of, you know, basically how the poor do compare to the richer, you know, a little bit of income inequality. One of them is a an article out of England, and it says, are we headed for a return to Victorian-style capitalism? And they're talking about how now Britain has a new national living wage. Of course, California is has just passed a law that they're going to phase in, I think it's over a period of six years, a $15 per hour minimum wage. It sounds like in Britain they have a similar scheme. They're going to phase in over a period of four years a minimum wage. And the author of this piece that was sent to me by Rob Abiera, thanks by the way, um, says that this is going to have some of the predicted effects, which is that people are going to be out of jobs. Why? Because you can't say, okay, pay more, you know, for to your employees, and at the same time, the profits of the company is not increasing at the same rate as the mandated increase in salary. What are you going to have? You're going to have the companies hiring fewer workers. Um, so he describes uh, what's going on with that. But the lament at the end is, you know, maybe we're headed for what he calls a Victorian style capitalism in which there's a massive income inequality. Uh, he says, he says, those at the top today, far more than in past decades, clearly believe they have a moral right to be wealthy while dismissing, often quite literally, he means firing, those who work for them as no more than a necessary evil, the cost of which must be kept to an absolute minimum. They forget that an impoverished majority is a threat to economic stability and ultimately to their own privilege. So this is sort of the idea out there that... Um, you know, you should want to have this minimum wage because if they're not paid enough, it's a threat to economic stability. It's a threat to your, quote, privilege. Um, you should be giving this up, even if you don't find these people to be valuable to you, to, you know, contributing to your bottom line, et cetera. You should go ahead and, and hire them for the minimum wage. Take on that obligation. It's, in effect, your moral obligation. And that's what has to be debunked. Um, a companion article to that is one that actually was published back in October at the Mises Institute website, Mises.org. This has been going around Facebook among friends of mine. The headline is, the poor in the U.S. are richer than the middle class in much of Europe. And this is something that maybe won't be a surprise to you. But if you are among the poorest in the United States, you are doing better than the middle class in much of Europe. And why is that? 
because of the European socialist style policies that they have. And the warning is, I mean, California, hello, we better get our act together before it's too late. The warning is, is that insofar as we continue down the same path as Europe in terms of policies, then we can expect to have our middle class become poorer and poorer and poorer. And this is why, you know, again, I think this election means a lot that we should definitely be willing to get behind a good candidate who promises to make great strides in a number of areas necessary to save our economy, to handle the um, you know, foreign policy challenges as well, because those are huge for, for stability, for long-term stability. Um, oh, great. Sally, over here in the Blog Talk Radio chat room, has posted a link to Don Watkins' talk, the event there, so that's great. Um, we're also hearing that the book, Equal is Unfair, is beating Piketty's Capital book, which is a great thing to see. If you want to continue to help that effort, you can buy Equal is Unfair. And I have the link to Equal is Unfair, like I said, over at the blog, don'tletitgo.com. Whenever you purchase anything through an Amazon link that I've posted at my blog, you are actually helping out my show through no extra cost to you because um, they don't add anything to your price. It's just a percentage flows over to the show and it goes right into the buttered coffee fund. So thanks to all of you who donate either directly or indirectly to that. I think this is, that's a voluntary uh, taxation, right? Is it voluntary? If you guys are donating, especially if I tell you that when you purchase through the Amazon link that I'm getting a percentage, it's indirect, but still voluntary, right? Just took a sip of buttered decaf there. Okay. So thanks everyone. Um, so let's talk a little bit about, I'm shifting gears here, what we should do, and now for something completely different, right? Um, I don't, sorry, um, the, the reference is gone for some people, right? Uh, but this is a story about government censorship, and Couldn't Be Writer over on Twitter sent this to me this morning. I thought I was done with my program notes. You could have a whole show around this. There is an effort, and we've talked about it some here and there on the show, for the government to silence people who have been questioning the party line, so to speak, on climate change. And this, uh, there's a blog, it's called Simple Justice, a criminal defense blog. Scott Greenfield is the author. And as I understand it, he just published this blog post today. So this is new news. They're saying that the Competitive Enterprise Institute has been served with a subpoena, okay? A subpoena, uh, you know, demanding that they turn over a whole bunch of communications, emails, statements, drafts, and other documents regarding the Competitive Enterprise Institute work on climate change and energy policy, including private donor information. And CEI is supposed to produce these materials from 20 years ago, from 1997 to 2007, by April 30th, 2016. So this is a huge overreaching, um, as Greenfield calls it, subpoena. The purpose, they say, of this unilateral action, and this is the U.S. Virgin Islands uh, Attorney General who's doing this, the subpoena is meant to threaten and intimidate 
CEI for advocating an idea that liberal politicians find wrong. They want to silence thought, speech, and disagreement. General counsel of CEI, Sam Kasman, quoted by Greenfield here, uh, he said the group will, quote, vigorously fight to quash the subpoena. It's an affront to our First Amendment rights of free speech and association. And Greenfield writes that no matter how strongly, how passionately, how righteously you disagree with the CEI's position on climate change, this is a frontal assault on the First Amendment. There is no gloss of feigned rationalization that could explain away why CEI's right to think, to speak, to advocate could conceivably be criminal, could conceivably be a legitimate target of a government subpoena. And they say, you know, government doesn't even really care about its unconstitutional purpose. Uh, Mr. Walker, who's an independent and 16 Democrat attorneys general, announced on March 29th that they would use their offices to combat climate change. Uh, And, of course, Al Gore was there to offer support. And they say, quote, the Virgin Islands, which is especially vulnerable to environmental threats, has a particular interest in making sure that companies are honest about what they know about climate change, end quote. Quote, we are committed to ensuring a fair and transparent market where consumers can make informed choices about what they buy and from whom, end quote. Now listen to this, okay? They're talking about, I mean, suppose, suppose an oil company is misstating the case about climate change. Suppose they're doing that, right? They're not misstating the case about their product what goes into it, the quality of their product, what they're selling. There's no fraud about that, the performance of their product, right? They Suppose they are lying about climate change. Suppose they really have all this data that supports the stupid, catastrophic, you know, anthropogenic, global warming garbage, right? Suppose they know this and they state otherwise. They are putting out their ideas that anybody else can go and refute with scientific data that you get about climate change studies, right? Um, Data about the climate is open to everyone. The only kind of data that isn't open to everyone is data that is about that particular company and the product and the manufacturer of it and what they do. That's the stuff that the government would have a legitimate interest in looking at and saying, okay, are you lying about this? Not climate change. Everybody can look at the data about climate change for themselves and decide what they think about it. Scientists can give us their expert opinions, and we can read and decide whether we can follow their arguments, whether their arguments are internally consistent, and all the other things you need to do to not be appealing to the authority of these people. But if a company is talking about climate change, they're just exercising their freedom of expression they are defending themselves against what I would say are unfair and futile efforts by the government to supposedly, you know, ameliorate climate change, lessen climate change by, uh, you know, putting some sort of uh, straitjackets on these oil companies, right? These energy companies. So they're defending themselves. They're talking about things that anybody else can go check for themselves. There is no fraud that should be redressable by a legitimate government, and yet this is what they're doing, and then they're also doing it now against the Competitive Enterprise Institute. It is, as John here in the chat room is stating, a climate change inquisition. 
an inquisition in the 21st century. And it is inexcusable. And this is yet another reason why it is so important that we get into office a president who understands freedom of expression and the ability to fund expression with your money and not you know, be held accountable for it, not, not be threatened with government action due to that. <sighs> Writes Greenfield here, he says, the spin blame is clear. Disagree with Walker, who is an, you know, an independent attorney general in New York. He says, not to mention the other 16 attorneys general, and they will come after you pollute people's minds with ideas and information that challenges theirs, and they will use the power of their offices to make your life miserable, to impose as great a burden on you as their powers allow. If you do not think as they do, you are dishonest. End quote from Greenfield. This is horrible. This is inexcusable. And we need to fight this as much as possible, preferably by putting in a president that won't let stuff like this stand. Corey in the chat room says separation of climate and government. I, I just think enforcement of the First Amendment is enough. You know, and again, you see the distinction, right? There are things about which the companies uniquely have information and, and government should make sure that the companies are not lying about those things. They shouldn't always assume that the companies are lying absent evidence to the contrary, right? You have to have innocent until proven guilty. But if there's evidence of fraud about their products, that's one thing. But even if they are lying about climate, it doesn't matter. This is not the government's job. It's ridiculous. So um, something definitely, definitely needs to be done about it. I got a few stories over here about privacy, which is you know often my, my pet issue, the FBI. And one, Rob Aviera gave me this one again. Thanks again. FBI spills iPhone hacking secret to senators. Senator Dianne Feinstein of California has had a briefing with the FBI about how it got into the iPhone, and she's not the only one offered a meeting. So maybe the FBI is keeping Apple in the dark about how it broke into the phone, but it's letting some members of Congress in on the secret. The enforcement agency has started briefing some U.S. senators about how it accessed the data. One of the people involved in, you know, uh, it was uh, Farouk's uh, phone, the terrorist attack. That phone has been at the heart of a contentious and very public battle between Apple and the FBI. Feinstein, Senator Dianne Feinstein, was briefed by the FBI about how it got into the phone. A representative from her office confirmed to CNET though he declined to give any details about the briefing. Hmm, not surprising, right? Feinstein is the vice chairman of the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence and one of the backers of a bill that would make sure the government can access encrypted data. Feinstein has called encryption, quote, the Achilles heel of the Internet. Again, why? Because she thinks she's entitled to all of this information so that they can enforce their unjust laws against all of us, that nobody can escape the reach of an increasingly totalitarian state. This is Feinstein's concern, I am sure. National Journal, which originally reported the news of the briefings by the FBI, also said that Senator Richard Burr, Republican of North Carolina, the chairman of the Senate Intelligence Committee, and a co-sponsor of the encryption bill with Feinstein, boo, 
was offered a briefing, but he hasn't taken the briefing yet. The office didn't immediately respond to requests for comment. Uh, both Feinstein and Burr believe Apple shouldn't be given information on how the FBI broke into the phone. Quote, I don't believe the government has any obligation to Apple, Feinstein said in the statement emailed to the National Journal. Quote, no company or individual is above the law, and I'm dismayed that anyone would refuse to help the government in a major terrorism investigation. End quote. So basically, you can be conscripted to help the government, and if you can't, then even though the government, whose job it is to protect you and, the, and your property, even though the government has become aware of a way that your property is at risk, that government will not tell you if you don't agree to become inscripted and write software for them. This is what Feinstein is saying. Apple did not play along. Apple did not agree to be conscripted at a tremendous cost to them and their employees. And because they didn't, the government is reneging on its obligation to protect Apple from hackers because this is crucial information that all of us could benefit from in terms of keeping the data on our phone secure. And the FBI is withholding it from Apple, which is, of course, the place that it would be of the most use. If Apple knew how the FBI was able to hack into this, then it could make us uh, more secure against that type of hacking, right? Or I could see whether that was even appropriate. So this is uh, ridiculous and horrible and another reason Feinstein needs to go, but probably won't. She'll probably die in office is what I'm guessing at some point. Um, this is another interesting headline from Rob. Obama won't support the anti-encryption bill. So in the previous article, I was just talking about this pending anti-encryption bill, Feinstein and Burr, you know, the uh, so-called bipartisan effort to destroy our encryption. They say it's been a good week for encryption supporter supporters, and Barack Obama is partly to thank the White House won't publicly support proposed legislation. Oh, won't publicly support. Okay, well, we'll see what they do behind the scenes, right? Won't publicly support proposed legislation that would allow judges to compel tech companies to help law enforcement crack open otherwise secret data and communications. It's an about face for the White House. Obama said last month that he had come around to the view that government must find a way to access locked devices. Why? Because of taxation. He's got to be able to reach into everybody's pockets, right? Remember, that's what he said. It says, even though the White House has reviewed the legislation's text and provided feedback, it is not expected to comment publicly on it. And of course, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean anything, right? Behind the scenes, they could be supporting it. It says, the legislation could be introduced in Congress as early as this week. Such a stance from the president would be a major victory for tech companies trying hard to defend the encryption. I don't know if it's a major victory that he just isn't coming out publicly. We don't know what he's doing behind the scenes. And we don't have transparency, so we're not going to know. They want transparency about us, them. They want all of their stuff to be hidden in secret. And I'm pretty much sick of it. Now they're talking about Apple. Oh, yeah. Rob Rob is Amy's news guy. That's right. Okay. Yeah, here in the chat room. Sorry, I got a little distracted with uh, the chat room discussion. They're having some good humor here. Do, by the way, if you listen live, it is worth it to 
dive into the Blog Talk Radio chat room. There's a good crowd in there, and they're often having a discussion. Sometimes they're a little off topic, and I get a little distracted, but other times I'm getting some really good on-point uh, contributions here. So thanks, all of you, for keeping the discussion alive here. Um, but yeah, the fact that Obama is not actively supporting, to me, it's not that much of a victory. This is a huge problem, this bill. And I really hope that they do not pass it. In my law and literature class that I'm teaching right now, we just started reading 1984, for me, rereading 1984. And it is so ominous. You know, in the very beginning of it already, you're learning about the telescreen and how the telescreen is watching you at all times and how you have to keep the appropriate kind of um, neutrally optimistic looking facial expression at all times when you're facing the telescreen, regardless of what's going on. If you have the wrong expression on your face, you react the wrong way, you could be guilty of what they call face crime, uh, watching you constantly. Horrible, horrible. And, you know, remember, Apple in its brief, when it was challenging the court order to open Farouk's phone, um, you know, to design the software required to open Farouk's phone, they said that in principle, once the government gets this, then it's just one more step for you know the government to require that Apple give it the tools to at any time turn on the microphone, turn on the camera on these little devices on our you know laptop computers, desktop computers, but also these little portable telescreens, in the words of 1984, that we carry around in our pockets. We don't want to let this happen. Um, you know, when you send an email on an iPhone, you often will have a little default signature, an email signature that says, sent from my iPhone. And in some ways, you're just kind of letting people know that you sent it from the phone and maybe the layout of the email or, you know, maybe there's some typos, you know, to excuse some of that stuff right, because you're just doing it on a phone. So maybe that's one of the purposes. Another purpose is just to say, hey, I got this iPhone, and I sent this to you while I was out and about, and isn't that cool? Well, for a while, I had this really kind of meandering iPhone signature, which was sent from my iPhone, which I am proud to carry, given the way that Apple stands up in the face of an overbearing government or whatever. And this was when Apple was still challenging and the FBI hadn't yet gotten into the phone on their own. And um, then it was, you know, I, I tried to change it somewhere in the intermediate. It was like, you know, iPhone is protected by Apple except from the FBI or something, right? And then finally I have this because, again, the government is going to keep trying to get into our devices. And what do we know about Apple? We know that Apple seems to be on our side in terms of protecting our privacy against an overbearing government. So my iPhone signature, if I send an email out, is now iPhone, comma, iDefiant. And that's it. It's brief. It just lets you know that even if Apple isn't succeeding against the FBI, the FBI is using its vast government resources in order to hack into these devices and then won't even share how they got into it with the company itself. Nonetheless, they are defiant, and that is the reason that I value, one of the reasons that I value Apple. The other reason is ease of use. 
elegance. Uh, yeah, those, I mean, those are the, really the two ones, ease of use and elegance, the functionality, the ease of use and the elegance are the, the reasons that I've been here for a long time. Ever since they had the IMAX with the little floating screens on the top, I have loved it. Now, yeah, Suzette in the chat room says, getting access to the phone info was a ploy to get Apple to cave on the encryption. Yeah, it, it seemed clear that what they were asking Apple to do in designing this software was basically designing something that would destroy the value of the product that's sitting in my hand right now and at the same time give the FBI access to data at the ready in a lot more cases. And in fact, what did they do? Once they figured out how to hack that one phone, there was a criminal case, not a terrorism case, just a criminal case in Alabama, and they went ahead and used the same technology in that case. Uh, to, to underscore how good Apple is in being defiant against a government that is increasingly trying to intrude on our privacy in ways that it is not entitled to do, Ars Technica has this article, and again, I think I have Rob Abiera to thank for it, um, but I'm not sure. Let me go back and check out the hat tip on this one. Actually, no, it is. It is um, Michael Martz who sent me this article. So, Michael, thank you for sending this one. It is Report Apple Designing Its Own Servers to Avoid Snooping. Apple suspects, says the subheading, that servers are intercepted and modified during shipping. Says Apple has begun designing its own servers partly because of suspicions that hardware is being intercepted before it gets delivered to Apple, according to a report yesterday from the information. Quote, Apple has long suspected that servers it ordered from the traditional supply chain were intercepted during shipping with additional chips and firmware added to them by unknown third parties in order to make them vulnerable to infiltration, according to a person familiar with the matter, the report said. At one point, Apple even assigned people to take photographs of motherboards and annotate the function of each chip explaining why it was supposed to be there. Building its own servers with motherboards it designed would be the most surefire way for Apple to prevent unauthorized snooping via extra chips. And Ars Technica says, as we've previously reported, the NSA is known to intercept and modify equipment before it reaches the hands of its intended customers. I bet you, me as a huge critic of the NSA and, and you know, person who's always advocating abolishing the third-party doctrine, if I was to order the new computer that Ed Powell thinks that I need and that I might need, I bet the NSA would try to modify it before it got here if, if I was doing that. Anyway, it says Apple spokesperson declined to comment about this, and you can imagine that they would, but... Um, yeah, this is just another indication that Apple is not sitting quietly while potentially the government is attempting to undermine their customers' privacy and therefore the value of their brand. Again, a huge part of the value of Apple's brand is the fact that Apple is designing encryption and designing privacy protections that are so strong that even Apple cannot access at least some of our data. There's some of our data, of course, that Apple can access. And when presented with a proper warrant, Apple will turn that data over to the government as it should, right? I'm not an anarchist, but I think it is perfectly 
moral and that it should be perfectly legal for Apple to offer us all sorts of awesome encryption technology for us to use legally. And it is fine. It's very good if Apple makes it so that the only way the government can get this information is by presenting us with a warrant. You know the old days, remember when the government had to come to you with a warrant, like to get into your house and search through your stuff? Well, there's more private information in our phones than there is in our entire houses now. And why shouldn't it be be the case that the government has to come to you personally with that warrant for it to be unlocked, right? Suppose it did. And suppose you say, okay, everything in there is just, you know, potential evidence and they do it. They have a warrant based on probable cause, particularized suspicion. Yeah, okay, they should have access to it. We could then have a separate debate. And this would be an interesting show. I'd like to talk to Tim Sandifer about this. Um, is the stuff in the phone testimonial versus mere evidence? Would you be incriminating yourself if you let the government look at stuff on your phone because it's more testimonial than it is actual evidence? So that's a very technical legal topic. We could talk about whether it would violate the Fifth Amendment to force you to open your phone on, on another show. But what we know at the very least is that it should be perfectly fine for Apple to provide us tech so that the government has to come to us with the warrant instead of going to Apple or other third-party service providers. I think that's that would be perfectly uh, moral and that it should continue to be perfectly legal. And that's why this bill that's going to be introduced in Congress is so bad and, and needs to be fought. People need to realize what's going on before the law is established and entrenched that makes it illegal for us to have these encrypted devices. Okay, so that's my rant on Apple and privacy and the third-party doctrine. Suzette in the chat room here is obviously a big Apple fan. Writes, yay, Apple, we've got a smiley face and a heart. I don't even know where you got that heart. That's an awesome little heart. Is that, that must be something available here on the Blog Talk Radio chat room. Let me see if I can find this here. Oh, yeah, there's a little heart. Okay, I'm throwing the little heart out into the Blog Talk Radio chat room. Okay, that's for Apple. I love Apple, too. Um, Corey's got a ton of questions for me on privacy issues. That's good. Selfishness says, sounds like a good idea for a book. Yeah, it sounds like a good idea for a book that I should have written two years ago. Very cool. Um, anyway, so let's go on to another story. And this is a story that is has been sent to me by another listener, Mark. Mark Williams, thanks for sending it. The link that I have, excuse me, my voice is going bad. This is probably the cost of the, excuse me, the, <clears throat> sorry, the four hours of sleep that I had last night. It's, it's taking its toll on my voice. So the link that I have to is a generic, I believe, ABC article talking about the so-called serial podcast. I hadn't heard of it before. The serial podcast and what it has revealed about ex-Taliban captive Bo Bergdahl. And I think there's 11 podcasts in total. And you can listen to all of them and hear what he has to say. And, you know, the conditions, he was, I guess, a POW for five years with the Taliban. He survived this, so he describes the conditions and all sorts of things. But what was interesting to Mark and what he wrote to me about was 
Bergdahl's apparent affinity for Ayn Rand and her ideas and Atlas Shrugged. And I'm just going to read to you a little bit from the email that he sent me where he was quoting from the one of the episodes of the Serial podcast. Let me see if I can see which one it is, so you know which one to go listen to where they're talking about this. Um, I actually don't see it here. So... Um, anyway, in, in one of the episodes of the Serial Podcast, it says, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't, in this email, I don't see which one it is, but he says, um, I wasn't surprised, but still excited to hear, oh, okay, here it is, episode seven, episode seven of the Serial Podcast, uh, you hear that Bo uh, Bergdahl was inspired by Ayn Rand. In one email home to friends and family titled, Who is John Galt? He wrote this, quote, this is from Bergdahl. It is not the being of value who fails the system. It is the system that has failed the man. For man should not stoop to fit the system, but the system should be made and remade to fit the man who holds value as worth. I will serve no bandit nor liar. Sounds like he's not a Trump voter. Okay, sorry. Uh, He says, for I know John Galtz and understand this life is too short to serve those who compromise value and its ethics. I am done compromising, end quote. So I would recommend going to listen. I'm going to go listen to this myself, and I thank Mark for turning us on to this. We could start to speculate. I mean, first of all, you could be pleasantly surprised that Obama was at all interested in helping somebody like this who was an Ayn Rand fan. Did Obama know Anything about Bergdahl? We know that the swap was not a good idea at all, the idea of giving five terrorists over for somebody. That's not necessarily true. But you do sort of wonder, you know, what did Obama know about him? Did he decide to try to help this guy in a way that we all, of course, don't like, um, even though the the kid is, I, I, as far as I can tell from that, an earnest fan of Ayn Rand? Um, now, Ed in the chat room seems to be doubting this. He says, my guess is John Galt wouldn't become a traitor by going over to Islamic totalitarians. Here's my question. Did he voluntarily go over to them or did he think he was going to try to escape and he was a young kid who messed up? And this is the question I would want to know. He may have just been a kid, a young punk who didn't know how to go about this right and didn't want to be sacrificed in the military. It's possible. Ed, I don't know if you've listened to all of these and maybe check it out for yourself too and we can have a discussion on a future show trying to evaluate this um ed says he was a deserter who became a traitor okay and and you've listened to the podcast too, the serial podcast where they go in depth into his experiences this is what i want to know anyway worth checking out uh, go ahead and do that and i actually have one last story i can't believe i've gotten through this very ambitious list of program notes. Again, go to don'tletitgo.com, and that's where I have a list of all the stories that I've talked about today, thanks to those who have sent in stories and helped me with it. Um, Timothy Mapley says, also agree with Ed. Okay, well, I, I say maybe we'll listen to the podcast. Um, Serial Season 1, he says, was ridiculously biased. Why would I bother with Season 2? Okay. Um We'll have to talk more about this in a, in a future show, and maybe we'll have a debate. Maybe we should have a couple people debate about Bergdahl or something. But um, very, 
very young, so I'd, I'd wonder. I want to I want to hear what his story is. Anyway, uh, final story is this: Pope Francis urging less judgment signals path for divorced on communion. So the idea is that contrary to traditional Catholic doctrine, people who have been divorced or single parents, etc., who normally aren't deemed to be good Catholics, might be able to take communion. In a broad proclamation on family life, Pope Francis on Friday called for the Roman Catholic Church to be more welcoming and less judgmental and he seemingly signaled a pastoral path for divorced and remarried Catholics to receive Holy Communion. The 256-page document, known as an apostolic exhortation entitled Amoris Laetitia, I think, Latin for the joy of love, calls for priests to welcome single parents, gay people, and unmarried straight couples who are living together. Quote, a pastor cannot feel that it is enough to simply apply moral laws to those living in, quote, irregular situations as if they were stones to throw at people's lives, end quote, he wrote. Now, in some ways, I think this is, of course, a good development because I myself are liberal on so-called social issues. Um, at Palace's newsflash, Pope Francis becomes Protestant details at 11. Yeah, it's pretty funny. Um you know, to to see religious institutions not be stuck in the Middle Ages, I always think is, you know, a good thing, other things being equal. It also maybe shows the desperation that they don't have enough people buying into religion, and so they need to have a, you know, big tent, so to speak, and, and welcome more people in order to get them on board. Uh, so for a variety of reasons, I think it's a good sign. But there's other things, you know, about this pope that are liberal in the economic sense and that I don't like at all. So, you know, in terms of social issues where I think the Catholic Church holds more sway, I think it's good news. Anyway, continue the discussion with me. I've got to go now, but go to don'tletitgo.com. You can leave comments on today's show. You can leave reviews at iTunes. Uh, you know, ratings and reviews are always welcome. Become a donor contribute to my Butter Coffee Fund. Thanks to those of you who do contribute to that. Um, and if you want to, if you really like this show, I always appreciate it if you share it with your friends. Increase the audience. That always helps as well. So thank you, everyone. I want you to have a good weekend, and I will talk to you in one week from today. Take care. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.